it is an extremely high pressure instant when you are about to go up against the defendant. The purpose of the other evidence is to show that he's not such a good guy. Have you ever in your life seen a flame do that, make a turn like that? And he said, no. And I said, so are we to believe that the law of physics was somehow suspended at your campsite that day? Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer of CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, I'm on the edge of my seat. I could not be more excited because we have a fabulous guest back and she's going to continue one of the tales from her case files. And she is... Hi, Jim and Francie. It's Kay Winfrey, again, still sitting in my dining room alone with my two dogs. So I'm delighted to see you guys again and happy to continue my tale. And I hope that you've been thinking of all kinds of fun questions to ask me about this really uh, different case that we've been talking about. Absolutely. And we want to also ask you questions about your two dogs. So yes. when have I ever not had questions? In fact, it's one of the things occasionally I tune into the iTunes comments to see what people are saying about our, our <laughs> lovely podcast. And I will note that we have four out of five stars. So I'm very grateful for that for everyone who has rated us so highly. We really appreciate it. But occasionally someone does knock uh, one of us. Uh, it's almost always Jim. But when it's not Jim, <laughs> when it is me, they always uh, in, indicate how annoyed they are with my constant interruption for questions. But that's the point of this podcast is it's like the three of us are sitting. And now that we have this video capability, literally sitting together, chatting about one of our cases. And that's just what I do. I ask questions because I'm a very curious person. So go. I'm grateful that Kay, that you put up with me, Jim, only sometimes does. But Kay, let's get right back in. I think if I'm not mistaken, the last thing you told us was that you had listened to phone calls from the defendant who's going on trial. You guys had been doing all your trial prep and his ridiculous defense seems to be that while he doused his on-again, off-again girlfriend with gasoline and lit the lighter, he didn't mean to hurt her or kill her because he didn't think he was standing close enough to do it. Do I have that about right? Exactly. And so having been armed with that information, the trial team that preceded us, again, not this was not stuff that came from the, the materials that were seized from Rodola's cell, but from his post-arrest statements to the police. They consulted an expert at the ATF laboratory. The ATF headquarters are actually in an adjacent county, uh, Prince George's County. And I had been out there many, many times to consult with the ballistics expert who had testified in the mm. Beltway Sniper case against Muhammad. So this was not a firearms expert, but it was a one of the other things that ATF does is they study explosions and other, other fire-related incidents. And this guy had conducted experiments with a dummy and flammables to see what, whether it's physics, I, I no longer remember the precise 
parameters of how he conducted the experiments. But the bottom line was that he had concluded that with a woman, her size and the way she was seated and with the amount of gasoline that was poured on her, that it literally in order to ignite gasoline, it's not as flammable as immediately flammable as the lay person might think. This was news to me because I always thought, you know, it's very flammable and it is, but you basically have to introduce the flame to the gasoline. So this notion that he could have been far enough away, if he had been far enough away, as he described, it would not have ignited the gasoline and she wouldn't have died. So the the purpose of all that was to put the lie to his post-arrest statement. So you must have been, obviously this sounds like a very difficult case. I can't wait to hear about your trial strategy. But it seems to me that you've got a tough road here because you've got difficult witnesses, you've got an obvious cause of death, and now you have an expert who's going to blow the main defense out of the water. It seems to me then that what the defendant said is also really good evidence that he killed her because he's putting himself in the position of lighting her on fire, even though he says it's an accident. So that's that's an issue you have to deal with, whether you want to put that in front of the jury. So I mentioned that the other two, there were two eyewitnesses, this other homeless couple. Had we not been able to find them and prepare them for trial, then we probably would have had to use his statement because the liability was something we wouldn't have been able to prove otherwise. But we had both of them. They were not the best witnesses I've ever had. I've worked with worse, though. And we were able to have explanations for their inconsistencies they did pretty well. The the other piece that I want to mention before I talk about exactly what happened at the trial is that we had evidence. This was the ultimate act of domestic violence. They were domestic partners and he killed her. But there was history of abuse between the two of them. He had beaten her before. They had gotten into another argument where he had burned another campfire, burned all their all their belongings. So we had in Maryland, in most criminal cases, you're not allowed to to introduce evidence of prior bad acts because you, the idea is that you don't want the jury to think this guy's done bad things, therefore he's a bad guy, therefore he did this. So there are other circumstances where prior wrongdoings that don't even have to be convictions, but you just have to have the evidence of them, can be introduced to prove motive or intent or other opportunity, things of that nature. But in Maryland, there's also a specific category for cases of domestic violence. They are especially relevant acts. And for a liberal state like Maryland, that's kind of an unusual body of law. So that had not been litigated. We filed a motion. We had a pretrial hearing. And the two homeless witnesses had to testify and get cross-examined. And that was, I think we decided, I can't remember at this point whether we used both of them, but the judge kind of split the baby there and let us have a couple of instances where they had seen him strike her, but they wouldn't. he would not allow us to introduce the evidence of the burning of the campfire. He oh. thought it was just so close and so prejudicial. Well, that's right. We don't want to introduce it if it's not prejudicial. I mean, I know. Of course it is. But it also tells us a story about who this person is. And to say it's too close, wait, (laughs) the purpose of the other evidence is to show that he's not such a good guy. And this doesn't do the same thing? Oh, prior bad acts. You know, I understand prior bad acts. Here, here I prosecuted almost my entire career here in Georgia, Kay, and I feel very lucky because... It, it does have really good evidence on what's called similar transactions here. And so if you can prove that he acted in a similar way, 
it comes in. And I think that that is just the much more fair way to do it. And it seems to me that if when this guy flies into a rage, his first act is throwing some gasoline and a flame out, then that is a similar act to what he committed upon her body. I mean, that's just one of it's just one more thing that's really frustrating about being a prosecutor. And, but, you know, it's obviously important the defendant have a fair trial. And so I get it. You don't want to just say, oh, you know, he chews gum and spits it out on the sidewalk. And so therefore he's a murderer. I mean, obviously those things are not at all related. And to me, that's what prior bad acts evidence is sort of designed to keep out from evidence of things that just have, you have a DUI and you're accused of being an ax murderer. Well, those two things are not related. Right. But if you have a DUI and then you kill someone in a car and the allegation is you're drunk, then that prior DUI is certainly relevant. You'd think, but I think in most cases, DUIs are not, they aren't usually the kind of crimes that are. Not felonies or crimes of moral turpitude. I know, again, something stupid. I was driving drunk, not a crime of moral turpitude. Right? I think that people who irresponsibly and knowingly get drunk and get it behind a wheel and drive fast and kill somebody, I believe that they are actually committing a crime of moral well, I think I think if it results in a death, but that's not too many judges that would disagree with that. But anyway, this was, that's, they call the balls and strikes. You know, that's what judges do. And they have right. to make that balancing determination that the evidence, he gave us a fine trial. I, I don't have any complaints about him. He was a great judge. So we had an eight day trial. I probably shouldn't tell this about my co-counsel, but she was a lovely person, very junior to me, but she was the eldest, oldest of three daughters of a man who ultimately came, became a judge. And she was one of those people with supreme confidence and not always willing to take a suggestion. And so sometimes I just, in my position, I just said, well, I'm lead counsel, so let's try it my way. You know, I, that wasn't a trump card that I wanted to play. That, that happened very early in trial prep. So she liked to, she liked to organize her evidence in a certain way. She had folders for the witnesses and then would put all of the evidence inside that folder. And I said, well, the problem is if we do that, if there's some need that I need to use, maybe do one of your witnesses that it's not accessible to me because you have it in your folder. And I said, this is the way I do it. I like to have it all in a binder and it's all chronologically how we are going to use it. And then we take them out the day at the time the witness is testifying and have them right there beside the file. And she kind of balked and I said, well, let's just try it that way because my way, because it, it works for me. So there was another instance in the trial where we had to mention this expert from the ATF who was going to testify about how close you had to be. And he had never testified as an expert. And as we know, if a person is going to offer an opinion as an expert, they have to go through a process where they establish their, you establish their credentials and ask the judge to receive them as an expert in whatever area of expertise it is. And then the defense has an opportunity to challenge those credentials. And the simple fact that somebody has not testified, been qualified as an expert in that field before, doesn't prohibit them from being an expert. In fact, the person who had been from the, the fire reconstruction unit in Howard County, who was our expert in setting the, the scene here, and one of the ways that I had kept off the, the bad homicide detective, everything that came in through this witness, 
it was the first time he'd ever testified as an expert. So anyway, my expectation was, because Megan and I had discussed it, that she was going to take this guy through that process. And mid-questioning, she just decided to proceed to ask him questions about what he had done and what he had observed. There's a process you have to go through to get to to the question. So here was her rationale was that she was not asking him to offer an opinion, but simply to testify as to his observations. And the defense objected and the judge agreed with her. And I was thinking there was a simple workaround. Let's just start asking the questions and qualify him. Anyway, so the the trial goes along. We put our case on. The case went in well. All the evidence came in. We had, this was probably, I mean, I've seen a lot of autopsies personally. I've seen a lot of autopsy photographs. This was, we had to be careful about the pictures that we introduced because they were among the worst that I had ever seen, as you might imagine. Anyway, and the medical examiner's testimony was compelling. And the doctor who had, the burn doctor who had treated her and all of these things that were hotly contested by the defense counsel. So I'm coming to the most fun part of the trial, which is the defendant had to testify. Okay, let's talk about that. Because to me, in every case, you never know whether defendant's going to testify. The defense is not obligated to tell you, at least not in any court I ever worked. And so coming right at you know, the end of the case, you close, you sit down, you, 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 you rest, as the dramatic moment on TV always says, your honor, the government rests or the state rests. And then it's time for the defense to present their case. And without fail, I never knew, not in a single case I ever prosecuted, whether the defendant would testify. And so at that moment, you have to be ready. You have to right. be ready for cross-examination, which meant a lot of preparation usually the night before, because you had to have everything in the case ready, every statement he might have made, every fact at your disposal. It is an extremely high-pressure instant when you are about to go up against the defendant, and you never know if it's going to happen. So it's preparation that might be wasted, but you won't know it until you get there. Right. And and I don't remember anymore, but I'm sure that I had it prepared well before, probably before the trial even started. You know, when you make your adjustments as the case goes on and you make your adjustments during the defendant's testimony, if he in fact does. But I was salivating. I mean, once the defense attorney said he was going to testify and there's the inquiry by the judge asking him, are you, you don't have to, are you sure you want to, right. so on and so forth. But I couldn't wait. And it was, it was like a dream come true. He was, <laughs> he, I mean, he'd been sober for months because he'd been in jail. So he was completely lucid. And one of the other things that they wanted to do was intoxication is not an absolute defense in Maryland, but you can get an instruction about diminished capacity if you can establish a certain level of intoxication. So that mm-hmm. was another aspect that his lawyer was trying to achieve. So that was another fun thing that, that I was prepared for. And he, so he tells this extraordinary story, but the best part was, so I've already told you what his defense was, and it didn't really vary from that. It was mostly the same thing, but the actual act of lighting the lighter was like something out of a fairy tale because he described, I've told you what the the expert had said, that you basically had to be right up on gasoline, that the flame has to actually make contact. It just doesn't work any other way. And he testified that he had been, I don't remember now, but however far it was, it was a couple of feet. And he was he was sitting off and to her right. And that when he flicked the lighter, the flame went 
forward and then take a sh- made a sharp left over to her body and lit it on fire. Wait, so well, it's it's not just the it's not just the magic bullet like that Kevin Costner movie about the assassination of JFK. It's the magic flame. Well, the magical versatile flame that has the ability to turn corners, sharp yeah. corners by the way. It wasn't like it went in an angle toward her. It went forward and then it made a sharp left, like it was homing in on her. Well, I have a question. I mean, how unfair is that to him? He had a, a defective lighter that otherwise he he didn't mean to do anything wrong. Can I ask you though, was he saying that he was trying to light a cigarette or something? No, he was trying to scare her. That he acknowledged, oh, trying, to, trying scare to scare her. her. He wanted her to leave. This lighter that he had that, that has this amazing ability to go forward and then take, take a left, what was that lighter used for? What's the purpose of that lighter? Well, it was a cigarette lighter. It was a, oh, it was a, a big no. Generally, on the highest setting, those little Bic lighters have, have a flame of maybe one inch to, let's say, at the most, two inches. He wasn't saying that he was two inches away from her and, and it, it went one inch forward and one inch to the left. What, it's not what? a flamethrower. No, no it's not, not, not a, and even a flamethrower wouldn't turn a corner. No, you know? I mean, <laughs> physics doesn't allow that. Unless, you know, I mean, I'll, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. There could have been a tornado that happened right in front of him, just as one of those flash tornadoes that we all know about, that happens to be able to turn a flame, stretch it in a direction away from him, and then stretch it two feet over to his left to actually make contact with her body. Wow, that must have been a fun and exciting time for him. Yeah. Um, and well, you can't funny... laugh in his face. I mean, that's a thing, no, Kate. That's a thing that's oh, no. so hard as a prosecutor. You can't laugh because it's a murder trial, first of all. But, you know, maybe you can use some sarcasm in closing, but definitely not when you're, cro- I mean, you can use sarcasm when cross-examining a defendant, but not about that. So how did you handle that? got a dead body, Inspector. I may be able to help with that. This winter, all your favorite detectives are streaming on BritBox. Don't miss exclusive new seasons of Death in Paradise. There must be something we've missed. Vera. It wasn't an accident, was it, love? Father Brown. What did he look like? And more. Once you start investigating, you won't want to stop. We're done when I say we're done. Stream your favorite detectives only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Y'all, you know I love true crime. And one of the things that I love the best about true crime is that the more you dig into a story, the more layers that you uncover. That's part of why I love the puzzle game, Best Fiends. The more I play, the more fun it gets. Every time I reach a new level, it feels like I'm uncovering a new layer in the story, one that I get to take part in, and you can take part in it too. The game gets much more challenging and more fun the more that you play. I love the design, the colors, all the levels. And most of all, I love getting my family involved. We compete together. I have to admit, I'm very competitive. And this game is really fun to play with all my family and friends. Best Fiends is a unique and exciting puzzle experience unlike any other puzzle game out there. Best Fiends treats the game like a service for their players. You don't even need the internet to play, so you don't have to worry about Wi-Fi access or using cell data. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips. You can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. 
Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Well, the fire investigator had recovered mountains of evidence, and the defense attorney insisted on every single piece of it being brought into the courtroom. And you could barely navigate yourself away, your way around the well of the court where all of this evidence was as it came into evidence. Because once it's in evidence, the clerk has to take possession of it under Maryland law, and it stays with the clerk. So the lawn chair that he had been sitting in was there. I brought it out, put it in the well of the court, and sat myself down. And I said, and, and they, we also had the tent where she was and the chair that she was in, which was all burned up. So I had him telling me where to move to put these, or I think maybe the defense attorney had already done that with him. So I sat myself down in his chair and I said, okay, so I'm here, you're here, and she's over there, and you hold out the lighter like this. And he said, that's right. And I said, and you lit it. And that flame went out in front of you and to the left. He said, yep, that's it. So he just kept repeating this. And, you know, it was just getting him to do that. And, and I also had, so that was, that was sort of a highlight, but I had also taken him through the entire day again. And my goal was not just to show, because I think he showed himself how, how ridiculous that testimony was, but the fact that he had a memory of so many of these things and he was able to decide this, to do this, to do that. The purpose of all of that was to undermine the intoxication, diminished capacity mm. defense that he wanted to get an instruction on, which that was successful. We, that didn't come in or that the jury didn't, did not get that instruction. So I don't even remember at this point if he had any other witnesses, but that was, for me was the highlight. So both sides rested. I think that we did not have any rebuttal witnesses. And so I was, as I usually do in cases like this with a trial partner, I give the opening statement and I do the rebuttal and my co-counsel does the, the closing argument. So I had started to prepare my, my rebuttal and before the, as the trial went on. And that night before the case was over, I finished it. I, you know, I type it out and think, not that I use it that much, but it's just so that I can be thinking about it. Well, it's, it's really just about composing your own thoughts. Right, exactly. And of course, with rebuttal, you know, you're going to have to make adjustments as the, the defense attorney's closing argument is going on. And so I usually print it out and I have it there and you know, I'll be looking at it during his closing and whatever. And the next morning it was gone. It was gone from my computer. And had I been back in the AG's office, I probably could have gotten my tech guy to recover it, but I'll just swing it. Um, wow. Yeah. But I didn't. What I actually did was while my co-counsel was doing her closing argument, I was writing stuff down on a legal pad. And of course, by, to anybody else, it looked like I was just taking notes. And Okay. You're far more organized than I am because I've never prepared a rebuttal argument. I always thought about what I was going to do for closing because I, I often used a PowerPoint or a flip chart. And so I usually had some outline of a closing already, but I've never prepared a rebuttal. I always wait to hear what the defense is going to say and uh, try not to take very many notes so that I look like I'm super prepared and just try to cram it all into my head during the closing argument of the opposing counsel. But it probably would have been smarter to do it the way you're talking about doing. So by the time that defense counsel got up after my co-counsel, I wasn't taking notes because I had done it during her closing, which was wonderful, but I probably missed a lot of it because I, I could only multitask so much. So he gave his 
I don't remember the one of the things that I told you about was that he took us to task for calling all these witnesses that he didn't even ask questions. And I've told you what I said in response to that. that but the, the main thing that I wanted to bring out was how cold and calculated this was and talked about the expert testimony. And then I use, you know, sometimes in, in, in Howard County, very sophisticated, uh, educated jurors on this panel, which has, you know, that varies from trial to trial, but this was a, a really, uh, and very attentive group. So it wasn't in closing, it was in cross-examination. And I said to him, it, after he testified to this L-shaped thing, I said, have you ever in your life seen a flame do that, make a turn like that? And he said, no. And I said, so are we to believe that the law of physics was somehow suspended at oh. your campsite that day. And there were two or three of the jurors that caught the reference to my cousin Benny. Uh-huh. And remember the, the, the famous yeah. grit scene. I'm going to, uh, Dale Laudner, Dale Laudner, who absolutely, you know, is a good friend of mine who my neighbors actually, their, their license plate is two Utes. And I took a picture of him and sent it to Dale. And he was like, oh, thank you so much. It's so amazing to see something that I wrote get into popular culture. And now I could tell him another example. Of, are that. we to believe that the laws of physics were suspended? That's awesome. Uh, well, I, yeah. that is that is one of my very favorite, all-time favorite oh, movies. And me too. The entire grit-eating world. I'm right. part of the grit-eating world. Right. And you don't use instant grits either. So... So, well, we, we could talk another time about my favorite lines from that movie, but, but that definitely is one of them. And, you know, I, I found that, I, well, Rodola had no idea what I was talking about, so that's okay. And two or three of the jurors did, that's fine. But it was a way of ridiculing him without being rude. Right. You know, I wasn't rude and I wasn't, I didn't use a mocking tone. It was just like sort of incredulous. Is this really what you think you want us to think happened? So my rebuttal went fine in spite of my lost Notes. So what happened? <laughs> oh, well, well, there's a lot more to this tale. So the jury went out on a Friday and it was late. Now in, in Montgomery County, judges do not keep jurors overtime because it's very costly to have the, you know, the staff stay there. And jurors don't like it, but he wanted a verdict. So he, you know, I think it was probably four, about four in the afternoon. And he let it be known that he was going to keep the jurors indefinitely. So Megan had, she was supposed to go out of town that weekend, that next day with her mother and her sisters. So I said, go, you know, just they go, I, you know, I can babysit a verdict. I can do that. So she left and we didn't stay late on Thursday. We come back the next day, all day long. I don't even remember if there were notes all day long. And I'm sitting there. They had the, in the courthouse, they had given us a, a little room. It's just the worst time when you're waiting on a verdict. Yeah. Well, it's the worst time. Also, it was February and this little room at a certain time, the heat went off and I was freezing. And he did not let that jury go until 1.30 or 2 on Saturday morning. Wow. Yeah. And so we came back on Monday and they deliberated, I think, over the, the course from Thursday, Friday into Saturday morning and Monday, they deliberate, deliberated 22 hours and then they delivered a verdict. Now, I haven't mentioned that we had charged him with first degree murder, which was first degree premeditated with specific intent to kill. We thought under those circumstances, that's the way it had been charged. That's what I thought the evidence showed. That's the way we had argued it. But under Maryland law, a jury is entitled to 
consider and be instructed on all lesser included offenses of which second degree is one of those. And that's what they convicted him on. They found him not guilty of first degree murder and convicted him of second degree murder. And what's the difference in penalty, Kay? Well, uh, first degree murder is a, it requires a, it's 30 to life. And so there has to be a life component. There has to be, it can be life suspend everything, but there has to be a life component. And, you know, under these circumstances, it would be, would have been probably 30 to life um, or just a life sentence. And second degree is, is 30 years. So I think he was at that point, I don't know, in his late forties and a 30 year sentence was probably going to end up being like a life sentence. So we had a sentencing in May and that was like three months later. And we prepared a sentencing memoranda and we memoranda, we were going to ask for maximum, of course, we're going to ask for 30 years. And I you know, fully believe we would get it. But as we we're waiting for the judge, uh, for the clerk to call it, the judge had some other things on his docket. The fire investigator, this man that I mentioned to you, is a great witness. He was a great investigator. Came and sat behind us. We hadn't seen him for three months. You know, all these nice greetings. And he starts to tell me about a conversation that he oh, had no. with one of the jurors. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. I'm ready. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it was some chance encounter during the trial. So uh, while, I'm waiting for the, yeah, while I'm waiting for the judge, I called up to my office to the court of the, the chief of criminal appeals. And I said, you know, get me all the case law you can on when this happens. And he sent me some cases. And of course, I had to tell the judge. So we tell the judge and we have a hearing. The investigator testifies. The juror testifies about the, you know, the nature of the conversation. And the juror said it didn't. It was, you know, just a, it was a nothing. It was nothing murder and he hadn't discussed it with any of his fellow jurors and it had nothing to do with his verdict but nevertheless it's just like could you please not let that happen at this stage Uh, anyway yeah so he he got 30 years and uh that was appealed so this has been a fascinating story with a lot of twists and turns and a lot of the most unexpected things but tell us is this a best case or a worst case in your mind? I know you don't like it when I do this, but it's both. <laughs> best case, because I got to try a homicide case while I was in the attorney general's office, probably the last trial of my career, especially since I retired. Worst case, because it got reversed on appeal. And guess why? I bet you can guess why. Oh, no. The conversation with the juror? No. The expert witness. Oh. The Board of Special Appeals said he should have been qualified as an expert. And of course... I did not, I had already left the AG's office by that time. and I would never have said I told you so to her anyway, but I kept thinking, you know, why couldn't you just do it my way? Right. <laughs> oh, that's so, so disappointing. Yeah. So it got reversed and that got set for retrial. And of course, on retrial, the most that the state could go after was second degree because the jury had acquitted him on the first degree murder charges. And by that time, Megan had left. And so... The case got tried by one of my, or got a, got assigned to one of my best friends who was still in the Montgomery County State's Attorney's Office. And after much gnashing of teeth and going back and forth and disagreement with the defense attorney, they got a plea and he agreed to a, a sentence of 20 years. Wow. Wow. Okay. Oh, that, you know, it's amazing to me that the, the cases don't come back on appeal all that often, really. Uh, for like individual prosecutors, it doesn't happen that much in your career. But when it does, it's just 
it's just agonizing. But so how long had he been in prison totally when he got that? Is that, does that 20 years include time already served? Right. Includes all the time served. So he had been even by the, so he was arrested in November of 2010 at right after she died. So he had been incarcerated the entire time through his trial, through the appeal. Uh, and I want to say it came back in 2015 or 16 or whatever. So he's probably still locked up, but not forever. Uh, so that bad. was disappointing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That was a, wow. that was a great case, right, Jim? Yeah, that was crazy. And I'm sorry that it came back to haunt you in a cer- certain way, but at least he did get 20 years. And, right. and I assume that he served or he will serve 20 years. Um, it depends. I mean, he has to serve two thirds of that time, I think. I just think it's also just important to say, I mean, Kay, you know, it's just such kudos to you, to your fellow prosecutors in and around the area who took you know, very seriously the murder of a homeless woman and moved heaven and earth to seek justice for her when some people might consider her to be less worthy than others. I certainly don't. She's a crime victim, regardless of you know whether she had a home or not. She died a brutal death and he should pay for it. And I just think it would have been, could have been easy for you and your fellow prosecutors to take the easy way out and you obviously didn't. And so thank you for that dedication. It was a privilege to be involved in the case. Well, thank you, Kay. And, and thank you for telling our listeners that amazing story. And we hope to have you back again to tell more stories and to tell us about your two puppies. Okay. Uh, <laughs> until next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Signing off. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d, the number two, l.org.